Happy Monday, everybody. Welcome to The Powers That Be. I know it's Media Monday, but we taped this episode before the weekend's big political news that Ron DeSantis is ending his campaign for the Republican presidential nomination. And John shot me a note on Sunday and said, why don't you give a little take on the DeSantis news for all of you loyal Puck listeners? So here we are. DeSantis ended his campaign where it began on Twitter slash X and admitted what has been pretty apparent to campaign watchers since the middle of last year, that Republican voters aren't ready to move on from Donald Trump. Plenty of postmortems will be written about why DeSantis failed. In fact, many of those articles were already done and in the can by the time DeSantis made his announcement on Sunday, because any journalist with half a brain cell could see that DeSantis was basically toast and out of money after his Iowa caucus loss. Democratic operative Doug Landry tweeted on Sunday that between his super PAC and his campaign, Ron DeSantis spent $150 million and only got 23,420 votes in Iowa. That's $6,400 per vote, maybe the biggest waste of money in the history of presidential politics. Now, despite their obvious bad blood, DeSantis endorsed Trump in his exit video on Twitter and attacked the lone Republican left standing against Trump, Nikki Haley. The question John wanted me to address was how does this affect the GOP race with New Hampshire voting tomorrow in their big primary? And the answer is it doesn't change the race much at all. In polling, DeSantis was pretty much a non-factor in all of the upcoming primary states, New Hampshire, but also Nevada and South Carolina. And while a winnowing of the field would typically help candidate like Haley, in this case, because DeSantis was basically running as Trump light, his exit really just helps Trump. A CNN poll of New Hampshire Republicans over the weekend tells the story. Among DeSantis voters, only 30% named Haley as their second choice. 62% named Trump. Haley has planted her flag in New Hampshire, and while she looked like she might be coming close to Trump a few weeks ago, the New Hampshire polling average currently shows Trump cruising to a 15-point win in the Granite State tomorrow. DeSantis dropping out probably gains Trump a few points. Two big things I'm watching now. One, how much does Nikki Haley lose by in New Hampshire tomorrow, and does she decide to soldier on for an entire month in South Carolina after that, and risk getting embarrassed by Trump in her home state? In other words, will this primary effectively be over after tomorrow's results come in? And the second thing, what does DeSantis' future look like? Trump won't pick him as his running mate because he doesn't add anything to the ticket. Trump sees him as disloyal, and DeSantis proved himself to be a lackluster campaigner this year. Having watched a bunch of these goat rodeos in the past, my hunch is that DeSantis simply goes back to Florida, does a softball exit interview with Fox News in a few weeks, and spends the later part of the year campaigning for Trump in a bid to save his reputation in a party that is now fully in the grip of Mr. Trump. So goodbye, Ron. You now have plenty of time to stock up on pudding at Costco back in Florida. And with that, let's get to Media Monday. Thompson's a pro, right? This was like a thing that sort of said nothing and everything all at once. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. 
It's Monday, January 22nd, which means it's Media Monday. Today, I'm joined by John Kelly to talk about CNN CEO Mark Thompson and his call last week for a new digital revolution at the network and whether he can actually transition CNN into the mobile era. We also dig into the apparent demise of Pitchfork at Condé Nast, what it meant for music nerds and why its business just stopped working. We'll discuss all that and much, much more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Happy Monday, everybody. Welcome to The Powers That Be. If it's Monday, you know it's Media Monday. I'm joined today by John Kelly. We're gonna talk about a new era at CNN possibly, hopefully, for people at CNN. And also, another crappy week in digital media, layoffs at Sports Illustrated, a changing of the guard at the LA Times, and John and I are gonna talk about what's going on at Condé Nast with Pitchfork pretty much being closed. There's layoffs there, they're being folded into GQ, which must be a huge indignity uh, for the music cool kids over at Pitchfork. John, welcome to the show, how you doing, buddy? I'm good, man. I'm just sitting here in, uh, you know, a, a half inch of snow, which is threatening to uh, shut down Western civilization. <laughs> Where I grew up, uh, our county in central Virginia, Henrico, was um, half of it was basically suburban. And then like a third of it was sort of like outlying rural parts of the county and half an inch of snow, a dusting of snow would shut down the school bus routes. So like we got lucky with a half inch of snow because all the kids in like more rural parts of the county couldn't go to school. So that meant that we got to stay home and torture our parents. Hopefully uh, your kids are being nice to you if they're missing school. Oh um, no, we got them in school today, man. Don't worry, no uh, no rest <laughs> for the weary. These kids are uh, are downstairs doing long division right now. We told them don't no dinner until we're positive you're getting into MIT. Uh, I can't do long division, so props to them. I forgot how to do all math, including uh, tallying a 20% tab uh, at a restaurant. <laughs> I want to ask you about some of Dylan's reporting from a few days ago. Last week, new, sort of new actually at this point, not totally new, mm -hmm. CNN chairman and CEO Mark Thompson finally unveiled his long-awaited manifesto for the company's future. As Dylan puts it, a lengthy, well-considered, statement-of-purpose-style memo that sought to break an army of television veterans free from their linear stockade and will them into the digital present. Thompson's memo, which was sent out across the company, was called CNN's Future. Um, he gestured toward the fact that, as Dylan wrote, it's in the DNA of people at CNN to care about linear television, being on air, getting your TV hits, climbing the ladder, hosting a show, etc. Whereas on the audience side, the future is all digital. This is what Thompson wrote in this memo. These are some of the things that Dylan pulled out. He went out of his way to placate the talent and the network veterans by saying, quote, our domestic and global TV schedules are one of the jewels in our crown. Uh, that was interesting by just calling them mm -hmm. one of the jewels in our crown. Mm -hmm. But he also said, we must abandon our preconceptions of the limits of what CNN can be and follow the audience to where they are now and where they will be in the years to come. We need to organize around the future, not the past. We need to recapture some of the swagger and innovation of the early CNN. It's time for a new revolution, Q. James Earl Jones' voice. Thompson also accompanied this memo with a couple 
announcements. He is elevating uh, Virginia Mosley, who was a veteran of the Jeff Zucker era, uh, to a new position where she will basically run domestic, international, and digital divisions on the editorial side. And he, as Dylan first reported a few weeks ago, is bringing back CNN, a former CNNer, Alex McCallum, to basically run all of the digital uh, products for CNN. So, John, stepping back from all of that, uh, there's a lot of bravado in this statement. Talk to me about what you think Mark Thompson's opportunities and limitations are as he talks about the future of CNN. There weren't a ton of specifics in here. Yeah. Um, you know, he talked about like reaching younger viewers who spend their time on digital platforms like YouTube. But this is not the New York Times where he was before. CNN's audience is just different. It's more of a mass market brand. People have shown themselves willing to pay for the New York Times where he used to be. And not just their news. I mean, also all of the the games and the, the you know, like the cooking app and things like that. So uh, what, what did you make of this memo? Well, a couple of sort of just observations first about the the memo before getting to the, the strategy. First and foremost, Thompson's a pro, right? This was like mm-hmm. a thing that sort of said nothing and everything all at once. You know, um, you almost wondered if this was the email that he wrote to Zaslov uh, when they were first seriously talking about the job, you know, quoted mm-hmm. extensively from or cited Ted Turner and, and made a bunch of obvious points that you could have made five or six years ago about how a- any organization that uh, still refers to a division as digital is, is, is living in the past. You know, that this is that we live in a digital world, as you know better than I. So I thought Thompson very effectively sort of suggested there will be a lot of change coming. I'm not going to tell you precisely what it is. It's going to take a while, but it's going to be significant without pointing to um, specific examples. And that was a pro move. It actually made me think like 1.a point, like if Chris Lick had just come in with a little more emotional intelligence, he would have been able to to prolong his stay there. But instead he kind of came in with this Al Haig persona about how he was going to do it all himself and do it immediately. And and, uh, and Thompson uh, showed what he's learned on the journey, you know, during his tenure as a CEO, before that, the managing director of the BBC, you have to signal to people loud and clear, there will be change and signal politely. Um, I think Anderson Cooper got a positive name check in that note, but no one else did that the, the TV people are going to have to change too. And to even point out like, hey guys, stop whining about the primetime lineup because we got bigger things here. So that is thing one. Thing two, interesting, I uh, uh, a little bit of subversive criticism, I think, of the Zucker era for not moving more nimbly to address this. I, I sense that throughout, that there was a a slight bit of very polite, very British, you know, like almost like Pinterest dry, um, confounding um, vexation uh, at, at uh, the fact that CNN even had to do this, that they had to move faster, which, you know, take that for what it's worth. I agree with you. I think this is going to be harder than turning around the New York Times for a number of reasons, which are structural. First of all, the New York Times was a publicly traded independent company that with dual class shareholders, meaning Thompson didn't work for the shareholders. He worked for Arthur Salzberger, who needed him to transform that company. Uh, Mark Thompson's gets a little more complicated. Uh, CNN's a part of WBD. WBD may be buying or merging or being acquired by another company in, in, within this calendar year. There are stockholders. It, it's a more um, public-facing job. So it will be harder. And then, yes, to your point, too, the, the, I think the revenue expectations are uh, profoundly different. You know, um, New York Times actually would kill for what are still CNN's, um, you know, uh, revenue numbers. And, you know, the, the business alone makes 
I think Dylan said seven hundred. That that's about right. Seven hundred million dollars a year in um, in carriage fees. Obviously, that's down considerably from where it was a couple of years ago. You know, hundreds of millions. Uh, but it's still it's still a really big business. And if I could glean anything from the memo, I think it's twofold. One is that they are going to continue to operate linear. That's where a lot of money is being made, as we say, but they're really focused on new surfaces. And I'm using that word intentionally. It, it, it's not, it's different from the strategy of the aughts where you're just like making, you know, um, garbage video for Facebook and, and pointing to some meaningless engagement number. Uh, that doesn't matter. I, I, I think that they're going to try and focus on, um, getting CNN into new platforms, but using it to lure people back to CNN itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that the opportunity for CNN, you point out correctly, it's 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 not going to be the um, the sort of high household income um, audience that the New York Times has, but it does have an opportunity to be the visual and text an audio news source of choice. How about, let's use the term utility of an enormous international addressable marketplace. Uh, The first obvious thing that Thompson signaled in his memo was that he's collapsing what was once known as CNN International. It's all CNN now, baby. It's the first thing the Newhouses did when they brought in Roger Lynch. We'll talk about that later. They said, why do we have two companies? Let's make it all one thing. Uh, that's a no-brainer, and I think it gives CNN a chance to have a a, a global footprint, both uh, in video, linear, and also in its digital properties. And the second piece was digital itself. And this, I think, was one of the other bits of sort of shade thrown towards um, Andrew Morris, who was a Zuckerite, now the publisher of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, that CNN.com was this big business that they never did anything with. And that is going to change under Thompson. And again, I think that the BBC has and will continue to be the North Star here. Everyone is saying, including our our pal Galloway, that uh, you want to know what Thompson's going to do. Look at what he did at the Times. I disagree with that. He's too smart. I think he knows, as you point out, it's a different entity, different economic expectations, different audience. I think look at the BBC where you have a trustworthy, multi-platform, premier yet high TAM news source. Uh, but the, the, the key variable in all this is how do you get people... CNN's been pushing its content out to the world for 10 or 15 years. How do you do that to bring people back into CNN? And that is, of course, the question that, um, you know, that's what the money's for, right? He'll, he'll have to figure that out. Yeah, I mean, Dylan wrote and i agree with him it's at least commendable that thompson was willing to say all of this out loud mm-hmm. and state clearly that cnn's challenges won't be solved on the linear battlefield uh, at the same time going back to before jeff zucker and andrew morse came to cnn around 2013 i mean the network had talked about digital being the future and redoing the website i mean people there might get mad at me because I, I know they've updated some of the pipes and the code and they've, you know, embedded video better on the website, but it still looks CNN.com, which is a fire hose for traffic. The front pages uh, still looks like it did more or less like 10 yeah. years ago. And they're really? just shoving as much content, as many links. It's like Drudge Report, uh, but with like uh, display ads that make your eyes bleed sometimes. And there are other challenges too on the digital front. I mean, like th- this is the thing that that sort of grates on me because CNN has been talking about this for so long. And I know, by the way, Alex is really smart. Alex McCallum and and can probably help solve some of these problems, but like the things Thompson says out loud in this memo are things that, you know, even the like savvy adjacent were saying 10 years ago, 
For many people today, the smartphone is a more important device for consuming news than the TV. Oh, I mean, I get that he has to tell, you know, some of the older guard at CNN that like that very obvious thing. But again, like this was pretty clear in like the year 2015. Video remains key, but the news video that most people under 40 watch is vertical, not horizontal. Uh, Shout out to Snapchat. I helped build the vertical video for news. I'm very proud of that. We pioneered that. But also many get to know CNN reporting and CNN anchors on YouTube or TikTok without connecting with them on CNN at all. Yeah, we know that. But also like including TikTok there is a signal too. And again, I think Alex knows this. Mark might not. Like TikTok doesn't offer any monetization path for <laughs> publishers, no, at, no. at least at the moment. And like, it is just a, a way to like get sort of brand awareness out there um, among young people. But you can't just say, let's get more stuff on TikTok without thinking more very surgically about how to do this. And then what's the revenue upside versus the cost here with some of these platforms? YouTube, certainly, like there's a path there. Snapchat, there's a path there. I think Meta, maybe not. They've dialed back their commitment to news. But, you know, there's just, as Dylan writes, a lot of broadly important things that needed to be said in this memo. But the hard, hard work of actually transitioning CNN to a distributed digital era when people care about uh, niche rather than mass market news (laughs) in certain cases is just very, very, very hard. The nuts and bolts are going to be very hard. So I hope they can pull this off and I think we are right in applauding him for at least saying this stuff out loud because most people in media have been living in a digital first world for at least five or six years now, if not longer. John, I want to take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to talk to you about layoffs at Pitchfork and what it means for Condé and digital media. Welcome back to the powers that be. John, you used to work at, at Condé Nast. Last week was another <laughs> bad week for them. Anna Wintour apparently told employees at Pitchfork, while not taking her sunglasses off, by the way, <laughs> <laughs> leaving those signature sunglasses on, that there were going to be mass layoffs at Pitchfork, the uh, music review site, music news site that a lot of us who care deeply about music have been reading since, geez, the late 90s, early 2000s. And the brand will be folded uh, into into GQ, which is pretty insulting if you are one of these pitchfork music snobs like myself. What do you make of this? I mean, a lot of my again, like I wrote for I wrote music reviews for my college paper in the early two thousands. Like I would get a like Trail of Dead CD in the mail from you know whichever label put it out, and you know I would look to Pitchfork for like cues on how to write reviews. And even though a, a lot of us who read Pitchfork mocked their sort of like overly dramatic and larded writing style sometimes. Like it it served an important curation function. Uh, It taught my generation to how to think and talk about music in a lot of ways. And, you know, maybe it's it's past its prime. Um, And Casey Newton on Platformer had like a a really good piece on this where he wrote about how the big platforms basically killed the need for Pitchfork. So like when Pitchfork came up, you know, you would take your precious 15 to 20 dollars to the cd store (laughs) and like have to figure out where was i going to invest my precious money which cd am i going to buy and yeah maybe you read spin i interned at spin shout out to spin uh Mm. maybe you read rolling stone or nme uh but pitchfork was in that conversation too and now 
with the big platforms like and AI, quite frankly, you know, Spotify has curated, algorithmically created playlists for you where you can just put on like Krangbin radio and it'll like create whatever vibe you want to play in the background. And like, that's how you discover music. Like music discovery has fundamentally changed. And Casey had a good line in his piece. He wrote, before Spotify, when presented with a new album, we would ask, why listen to this? After Spotify, we asked, why not? Like, because everything is basically, not basically, but if you pay like a little premium free, you know, there's not a lot of friction uh, when it comes to music discovery. And Pitchfork offered a gateway for music nerds to like figure out what to buy and what to listen to. And like that just doesn't really exist anymore. And again, this is all on top of the bigger problems in digital media uh, that we're seeing. And Connie Nast is like at the forefront of grappling with all of those things. These big premium legacy magazine brands that don't really fit into the social media era. Jeez, Peter, you're so upset. That makes me upset. I, I, um, <laughs> I guess I should have I should have suspected that this would be one of your sort of hallmark brands. Uh, as you know, I'm I'm not a music person. I still listen to like a lot of the same like '90s rap that I grew up with, and and I've I've, I've sort of <laughs> have, have, have not not evolved. But the tragedy here is that this was a brand that people loved um, and it had the wrong business model. But but let, let us zoom out for a second and I'll, I'll offer some different, hopefully clarifying perspective. I was at Condé Nast actually as a consultant. I, um, uh, I was working on the, the business model for The Hive when we were trying to get it funded when mm. the acquisition happened. So I was actually working with the group that made the acquisition. And at the time, I remember even actually being a little skittish thinking, oh man, they just burned $20 million on this. I think what we were asking for like three to get that business started. I thought, oh shit, are they gonna, are they gonna, um, uh, is this gonna negatively impact me. Um, my feeling at the time was that there was a lot of terrible small scale M&A happening hmm. in, I guess, what you'd call magazine publishing in the 2015-ish era. Time, which was uh, um, Time Inc., which was the spun out magazine division of Time Warner. Remember, Jeff Fugus uh, spun out that awful business when he was trying to get the um, the Warner Media assets sold, eventually at AT&T. Jeff Fugus turned out um, a real winner in this deal, but not a lot of other people did. Um, and uh, Time Inc., which was run by this guy named Joe Rip, who like was like a again you know insert uh, you know sports metaphor and angry listeners, but he, he was like a, a rich co-tight character. Like, what was this guy doing running that company? They bought Hello Giggles, your favorite uh, digital media platform. <laughs> um, that Zoe Deschanel owned, I think also for in the, in the 20-somethings, and Exo Jane, Jane Pratt's company. And at Condé Nast, they bought Pitchfork. It was a deal spearheaded by this guy, Fred Santarpia, who I like a lot. I think Fred was a great guy. He helped me a lot when I was there. But they were buying something just to buy it. Pitchfork never made sense in that business. I think mm. that they convinced themselves of the deal logic because they had a couple events. One was in Chicago. One was... I think in Paris. Yeah, the music festival. I, I assume that's going uh, by the wayside now, too. <laughs> well, I would assume so, too. And Condé Nast had also bought Pop to Life, which was a large experiential company. Another, mm-hmm. in my view, um, subprime M&A deal uh, for a company that had a lot of experience in live events. The Met Gala, the Oscar party, the new establishment summit. The, you know, there was a lot of credibility um and yet, uh, the, the company was a, a, amid a civil war, so um, you couldn't expect that to work. And I think I've shared once before on this show, I remember being in the elevator once with Bob Sauerberg, the CEO of Condé Nast, and um, the Pitchfork founder got off, and Bob just closed his eyes and said, what the fuck are we going to do about that guy? So, one of my favorite terms of art that I learned um, uh, at TPG was... Um, 
Some businesses uh, die of starvation, but most die of indigestion. And that's what Mm. happened here. Pitchfork never should have been uh, owned by this company. It was on the wrong business model. It was was a perfect candidate to be a a niche, bespoke, highly curated uh, subscriber business or community business, whatever you want to call it. And uh, that's just not how Condé Nast makes its money. But here is the, the, the meta, meta, meta point. And I want to be sensitive here because um, I know I, I like Roger. We've had great exchanges. I think he's pissed at me right now. I don't want him to get more pissed. I don't see why he's pissed. But anyway, we, we should all be adults here. Um, the strategy in 2015, one strategy proposed by uh, a C-suite executive who shall go unnamed pal of mine, was that they should find a way to do a, a create a sort of Russian nesting doll brand strategy there, i.e. some brands were huge and should be invested in more. Some brands were small and they should be vacuumed up by the bigger brands. So maybe, you know, uh, Glamour absorbs self and is absorbed by Vogue, et cetera, et cetera. You get it. Maybe Vanity Fair takes over Architectural Digest. Mm-hmm. Uh, to my mind, actually a pretty clean idea that would have been beneficial. Anyway... The executives um, didn't like it. Uh, turf battles ensued. I don't mm. know if it actually made its way to the new houses or if it was just sort of killed in the crib. But anyway, lo and behold, all these years later, that's what's happening now. And so I'm uh, I'm sad for you, obviously. <laughs> it breaks my heart to hear you in that kind of agony. But I'm not surprised at all. And actually, I, um, I think that things could have been worse here. Will Welch is a... Is a, a pretty um shrewd and and uh, uh emotionally intelligent uh operator I, I think that pitchfork will do better here otherwise it, it's too bad that um conde nast probably didn't have the time or energy to mm. to find somebody to, to put up a couple million dollars to to just sort of take this barnacle off the business and do something else with it but uh, i'm not surprised that this is what happened here and i'm not surprised that Anna did that in front of the um, their employees, and also, by the way, I should say, you know, Anna like I think has like pretty thick glass. Like she, I think she requires like pretty thick glasses. That's that's actually one of the secrets of the uh, the sunglasses uh, thing. I, I, gotcha. I am reliably told. There were just a that, lot of headlines um, out there like calling her uh, cruel for like leaving her glasses on while. You know, it's funny. She she's a misunderstood layoffs. character in a lot of ways. She's very. In, I I don't I didn't have um I didn't report to her. I I, I don't want to act like I have a. a, a relationship with her that I don't have, but she's very practical. I feel like uh, if, for those who watch The Crown, there's a sort of post-war British practicality. Mm. Uh, so, And she has that. Sometimes I, I think people would say it leads her to make decisions too quickly, and, and sometimes she's made the wrong ones. But I don't think that, given all the, the, the headaches that Condé Nast has to, uh, has to manage, you know, just as a business of that size, this wasn't worth it. And um, anyway, sad day for them, sad day for you, but uh, this is capitalism. Well, thank you for your condolences. I am allowed uh, to <laughs> feel sad and nostalgic about Pitchfork and my time listening to Stephen Malcolm's albums and you know whatever sort of B sides I could have obtained via my job at the college newspaper at Georgetown, while also understanding the business imperatives at work. This is sort of how I felt when the Times killed its sports section, or when mm-hmm. you know, or last week, and like Sports Illustrated, which like had long outlived its usefulness. <laughs> um, you know, at least as a consumer product. You know, I grew up on that, and I also understand yeah. uh, why it withered. Um, I want to go out today, John, by listing for you mm. the only eleven albums that Pitchfork has given a 
10 out of 10 rating to over the years. There are only 11. This is how snobby Pitchfork is. And I'm going to ask you, you uh, music neophyte, you music Luddite, which of these bands you know? Just say yes or no. Ready? Okay, yeah, sure. Sure, I'll call. 12 Rods. Oh, love 12 Rods. I thought, thought, <laughs> thought they were almost as good as 13 Rods. <laughs> Walt Mink. Uh, was he a, a English poet from the 19th century? <laughs> uh, I think he was a uh, Twin Cities prog rocker from oh, that Walt, the right. 90s. Yes, different different person. Eamon Tobin. Oh, Eamon Tobin. Yes, I think that we uh, we went to um, uh, uh, study abroad in Ireland together. Uh, that sounds about right. He was a sort of avant-garde, like, bass DJ. Radiohead, you know. Yeah, yeah sure, sure, sure. I'm a Bonnie Prince guy. Billy. Um, you know what? Uh, we, we, were, we were ships in the night. <laughs> Flaming lips. Sure. Yes, that I can handle. Oklahoma City. <laughs> there you go. Radiohead, again, uh, OK Computer and Kid A both got 10 out of 10s. I struggle. Oh, really? Agree. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you will know us by Trail of Dead. Um, boy, but w- that's some name. <laughs> All right, three left. Wilco, assume you know. Duh, yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, Kanye. What, what, which Wilco no. album got a perfect rating? YHF. What, Yankee Hotel okay. Foxtrot. Yeah, the Foxtrot. Okay. All right. Uh, Kanye, you know. And then of course. The, last, the last one, very controversial, Fiona Apple got a 10 out of 10 back in 2020 for Fetch the Bolt Cutters, which... Oh, that's interesting. So a, a post-prime uh, Fiona Apple, that is, um, yeah. that's, and, and post um, that, that uh, Showtime show, well, uh, yeah. well, that all makes sense. Uh, I've learned a lot here, Peter, and, um, yeah. you know, that's I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying for. to break like your we, heart. We can, that's why our, our dynamic works. We teach each other, we both teach each other something every week on this podcast. John... Thanks so much for playing that game, and thank you so much for joining me on Media Monday. See you in the Slack. All right, see you there, buddy. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck.